Our scripture reading for this morning is from the fifth chapter of Daniel's book, the prophet Daniel, uh, verses 1 through 6. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we pray that as you have spoken through the prophet Daniel to people throughout the years, that you will speak to us today as well. And that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you might continue to move us and remake us greater and, in greater and greater ways into your image. And we will give you all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be with you on this Veterans Day. We'll say one more thing about that before we leave today. But we're continuing through our series on the book of Daniel. And I want you to remember that, that the overarching theme of this is called Lionheart about having courage to face the challenges that we face. Because as we get through the text for today, I'm going to be inviting each of us, myself as well as you, uh, to have the courage to face some of the things that we need to face in our own lives. Today is an interesting topic in that Daniel is not present. Daniel doesn't appear in our text for today, so he's not really going to appear in the sermon as well. He will reappear next week. Yes, folks, Daniel will be back, don't worry. <laughs> But what we have the focus on today is a pagan and unfaithful king who's confronted by the will of God. He's confronted by the will of God through faithful people like Daniel. And God is using these people to, to change his heart and to change, through changing his heart, change his actions and as a great ruler, change the lives of his people. The king we're looking at today is named Belshazzar. He's acting in an absolutely pagan manner. He's deliberately flaunting God. And we see God confronting him with consequences. There's a warning that comes to him about a writing on the wall. Now, as we approach this, let's name it. And that is that we are going to be looking at a purely negative example today of how to approach God. We're not going to have a chance to see the positive folks, the faithful servant, the easy object lesson, the person who changed their heart, changes their heart right away. And sometimes, and often really in Scripture, we get a story whose character's values and actions are a complete affront to God. And we're invited then to step into the neighborhood anyway of that story and say, well, what does that say to me one who desires to be a servant of Jesus Christ. In this confrontation with Belshazzar, what is God teaching us in this? These stories of warnings are legitimate voices into our lives, and Scripture has many of them. And I hope that we'll pay attention to those. We don't like in our day and age to just 
be confronted. We want to hear the good thing. We want to hear the positive thing and try to aspire to that. But sometimes in order to aspire to something greater, we have to be absolutely honest. And we need to be warned about the things we are doing or believing or are associated with that would keep us from being in the face of God. So Belshazzar is in his party, and there is writing on the wall. Now, where do we have that in our lives? Where do you have writing on your wall? I was thinking about this 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 week, and of course, we'll get to Scripture and how Scripture confronts us. But how many of you are on Facebook? Anybody here on Facebook? You know you have a wall on Facebook, and on that wall, people can write things to you. They can write, happy birthday. They can write, good job on your promotion. They can write all kinds of wonderful things. And sometimes we get confronted with things. We get confronted with the reality that someone's job is lost, their family is having trouble, or that we might have done something to them in the past. And most people aren't quite so out there that they'll put the awfulest things on our Facebook wall. But the wall's there. And what I want to say about that wall is not so much what goes on it as our own motivation in paying attention to it. Those of us who are on Facebook, perhaps too much so at times, maybe we'll need to repent of Facebook by the time we're done with the sermon today. Um, We tend to look at it a lot. We tend to pay a lot of attention to it. What are my friends saying to me? What are people saying about me? What are their opinions on this thing or that that's happening in the world? And we go to that wall and we're eager to see what's happening there. So as we think about approaching the wall that King Belshazzar is confronted with, as we think about God speaking to us and challenging us, I want to invite us to think about, first of all, adopting a posture of eagerness to hear what God says to us, even if it's a word of confrontation. Because when God confronts us with something, it is for our benefit. It is for our purification, for our repentance, for our coming to a place in life where we can live more peacefully, live more openly with God, and where the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, can indeed keep our minds and our hearts in Him. Well, what's our historical setting? Cyrus is about to conquer Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, who we have walked with in the first four chapters of the book of Daniel, has been dead for a long time, some 20-some years at this point. And Nebuchadnezzar, who expanded the, the nation of Babylon and made it the greatest kingdom on earth at that time, died in 562 B.C. after ruling for 43 years. And the ensuing years in Babylonian history, until its overthrow by Cyrus, were marked by all kinds of bad things progressive deterioration, intrigue, murder. Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by a friend who was known, I'm not kidding, as Evil Merodach. Would you like to be named Evil Merodach? Don't name your children Evil Merodach. He ruled for two years and brought then his son on the throne, a man by the name of Nadonitus. As we pick up this story, After the 20 years of Nebuchadnezzar being dead, it's now 539 B.C. Babylon is going to fall in hours, if not in days. And Belshazzar now is the one on the throne. And when he talks about his his father, Nebuchadnezzar, he's doing it in kind of the royal sense. Nebuchadnezzar was really his grandfather, but he refers to him as his father because in terms of of, uh, authority, 
Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Now, Belshazzar is not the king over the entire kingdom of Babylon. He is the king over the city of Babylon. His father, Nabonidus, was off doing other things, mainly having to do with foreign trade and building up things along the borders. And frankly, Belshazzar was not as, apparently, as bright or had as much facility in ruling as his father did. And so he's put in charge of the city, and that's all. Now, while he does this, the Medo-Persian Empire surrounds Babylon, the city, and they're poised to go ahead and conquer it. Now, there was a lot of false confidence in that day. We know that no kingdom uh, will ever be able to withstand forces forever. But the city of Babylon had a lot going for it. It was huge. It was so huge that there were fields within it where they could grow crops that could feed the entire city for some period of time. It was fortified in ways that were amazing with, a, with two walls and a moat in between. And the Euphrates River ran through the middle of it, so there was never any worry about whether or not the people would have water. So it was very difficult to kind of starve out the city of Babylon. And so there was this great confidence among the people that we will never be conquered. Because while people are waiting outside to conquer us, they're going to run out of food before we do. They might run out of water before we do, and they're just going to finally lose interest and go. Babylon was considered unconquerable. And so Belshazzar, as he sees these armies surrounding him, he has, first of all, a false sense of security about this because he thinks he's going to be okay. But he also has this sense inside of him, what if it's not? So Belshazzar decides to do the only thing that is in his power to do at the moment because he can't go outside. He decides to throw a party. And it's a very, very big party. And during this party, the king shows that not only does he not respect the forces outside, he also has no respect for God. Belshazzar puts together this party of a thousand of his nobles, wives and concubines. There are all kinds of people there. History records the existence of a banquet hall there in Babylon that was certainly large enough to, to house all of these people. So historically, we believe it's completely correct. And so with this great banquet hall and all these people and all the provisions of the city, there's this act of contempt for the armies that are outside and this false bravado that while we are being surrounded, we can still have a party. But the key thing about this story is not so much just that he has this contempt for people. He also shows his contempt for God because he does a very, very awful thing in the midst of this party. As the party's going on for a long, long time, and the, uh, Daniel is very careful to say that he drank wine, and he drank wine with his nobles. And so they're partying for a long, long time. These things could sometimes go on for days. And so sometime during the course of this, Neb rather, Belshazzar decides, I've got to do something to liven things up a little bit. So I'm going to do something that's going to shock everybody else who is here. So he thinks about back in the storeroom of his temple there are the bowls and the goblets which were set apart for God's holy use that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from Jerusalem and stolen from the temple in its destruction and brought, it, brought them to Babylon. Now, these are not just a setting at a dinner table. These were among the most special and holy objects to all of Israel. These were the bowls that would be used for purification. 
These were the goblets that we used for Passover and other types of feasts. And very few people would touch these, even amongst the most um, faithful of the Jews. These were only for the priests to hold. And so you had a very small percentage of people who would ever hold these things, and when they held them, it would always be doing something specifically to honor God in that moment. Through one of the rituals of worship, through one of the purification rites, in those objects, people said, God is here because the holy objects have been brought out in our time of worship. And what does Belshazzar do with them? He brings them out for this party. People are drunk already. Babylon was such a morally bankrupt people that I, I hesitate, I shudder to think what might have been going on in that banquet hall at that time. Even other nations who were pagan around them viewed the Babylonians as among the most morally bankrupt people on earth. So the holy objects are brought in. They're used for this party. We can only picture, and maybe we shouldn't, the nasty things that are happening in there. And uninvited, somebody else decides to show up. And this person who is uninvited who shows up is God. And God confronts Belshazzar in this moment with these holy vessels now brought out. Belshazzar is thinking the party is going to go on. It's, it's taking on more energy. And God brings writing on the plaster wall by the lampstand, which is the very front and the most visible place of the party. And the king watches the hand as it writes. As he drinks and defiles the holy vessels, God sends him a message. And it's such a powerful message that his knees knock, he shakes, he is unable to do anything. And, and I will tell you that we're not going to finish the story today, just so you know. I'm going to leave you hanging for the week in terms of what happens after this. So do read it this week in preparation for next week, how God works in Belshazzar and what God says to Belshazzar. But it's a powerful image because this has become an image that's common in many cultures. It's from this passage that we talk about our knees knocking. It's not from Shakespeare or someone like that. It is God acting, communicating, and judging this pagan king because, because... God will not be mocked by the king. The king is confronted in a miraculous way by the will and the power of God. He is confronted by something. He knows that he is in big, big trouble. This is not something that his um, magicians would have been able to do. It's not something that anybody else in his kingdom could have pulled off. He is clear from the beginning that God is speaking to him. And so there are lessons in this confrontation, and it's hard to convey really how offensive this whole thing would be and why God feels he needs to come in and act in this way. To the Jews, as I mentioned, these are precious objects. They're central to their worship, and the point I want to make here is that they are critical to their identity as Jews. They're, it's critical to their identity as Jews in terms of their community life, in terms of their walk with God, because to the Jewish people, worship was not just something that happened in the temple and you went on and did your way. You remember the Ten Commandments. Remember how specific they are and how they move out of the temple and into the life of the people. And how the, the whole book of Leviticus talks about how this law is applied in daily life. Because worshiping God was not just a matter of showing up for an hour in the temple and going off and doing what you wanted to do. 
So the disrespect has to do not only with the worship, but the entire way of life of the people and also of God himself. This profane use of these sacred objects says that Belshazzar has even more contempt for God than he does for the people around him. He is saying by this that God is unimportant. He's saying that God is impotent. He's saying God is irrelevant because he doesn't believe the living God exists. Even though his grandfather, in confronted with the fiery furnace, he is able to, to come worship the living God. Belshazzar has lost it in the ensuing 20 years. He's back to his pagan gods. He's back to his gold and silver and iron and wood and stone. He thinks God doesn't exist. But no one can mock God. No one can mock God and continue to mock God. God suffers us with much patience. Praise the Lord. Isn't that true? I mean, we in our sinfulness, we in our failures, sometimes we mock God as well. We don't intend to, but sometimes we do. And God doesn't just blast us into oblivion at this time, as he could have done with Belshazzar also. But no culture can continue to do this. So what are the lessons we learn here? There are some very important ones for our own life before we move to our particular application. The first thing we learn is that God is holy. And the word holy means to be set apart. That God is different from us. God expresses this in the covenant where he says to the people, you'll be my God, I will be your God, and you'll be my people. And then he expresses it more specifically in the law, saying this is how you live. The declarations, the agreements, they make clear that the primacy the primacy is in the person of God himself, the standards and the love of God. And so Israel's life was dynamic. It wasn't position-oriented. It was worshiping and serving. And so God is holy in expressing himself to us and in this, the history that he invites us to, to be reminded that no matter how strong a nation or a person is, the holy God reigns. No matter who is currently in power any place, the holy God reigns. No matter how bleak things may look for God's people at any moment, the holy God reigns. And so, since God is holy, we are called to live in a holy manner. In following a holy God, God's people are set apart as well. It's a very embodied way of looking at life. The behavior and conduct is not separated from belief. That the things that the Jews believed and the things we believe are meant to impact our daily lives, our decisions, our moments, because God wants us not just for an hour a week, God wants us for our entire lives. And these symbols then pointed strongly to the spiritual realities and the community life. And so they were carefully handled by the nation as an orderly, tangible declaration of the worship of people to God. And so we're invited to conduct ourselves in as well to avoid, rather, unholy actions. What are those things? Avoid worshiping things other than God, knowing our temptation points, and asking God to lead us away from that temptation, through that temptation, into obedience. And then, on the positive side, embracing those holy actions that God asks us to embrace. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. 
pushing away from the sin that besets us. And when we do sin, to confess to God and ask for that forgiveness. Most of all, not taking for granted the life that God calls us to live. Remember, no matter who or what, the holy God reigns and needs to reign in us as well. So we've learned that God is holy. We've learned that we're to live in a holy manner. And we should have a sense that the misuse of what should be holy should be a cause for fear. Paul said to Galatians, the church in Galatia, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This is a warning from the New Testament. We've heard Daniel's warning. This is Paul's warning as well. And we have a tendency to focus just on the love of God, and that's good. It's important to remember that. But does our familiarity with the, holy, with, with the love of God erode in us a sense of wanting to live a holy life? Does it erode our sense of how we handle the holy things in our lives? What are the sacred vessels that you and I have? Well, it's not the bowls and it's not the goblets, but it's those important people and those important values in our lives. Do we truly respect our spouses and our children? Do we respect the vocational call that God has given to us to serve him in the work that we are doing? Do we respect and others as well? Do we address them in the body of Christ as brothers and sisters? Do we respect the call of God to grow and to worship and to serve? One of my seminary professors made a comment that at the time I thought was kind of strange. This is many, many years ago. But in our pastoral care classes, we were talking about communion and baptism. So we were talking about funerals and weddings. Dr. Baird said to us, Beware of overhandling the holy. Huh. I thought, what does he mean by that? And I think what he meant by that was we should never get to the point where the things we do every day cause us no longer to stand in awe of God and God's work in the midst of it. That when we receive the Lord's Supper this morning, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. And we shouldn't take that for granted. We come every week for it. It's wonderful to have that available. Can we keep coming in awe and in respect of what God is doing there? And in our relationships with people to get away from the church itself, can we continue to handle with reverence, with love, with care, those relationships we've committed to, those friendships we have been enjoined with, those calls that God has for us as we live out in the world? Because not overhandling the holy is not a call just to pastors. I think Dr. Baird is right. It's a call for everyone. So we're to live in a holy manner. We're not to, we're to recognize that misuse of what is holy should be a cause for fear. And a very important point I want to make about all of this is that God's will is written on the wall already. And what I mean by that is we have competitors to our allegiances, and we're aware of that. We can trust in lesser gods. We can think God will ignore our disobedience. We can fail to connect our faith in other issues of our life. But God has already instructed us in the things that are most important for us. God has given us his word as a guide for this. What is God writing on our wall? Now, you and I each are different people. We live different lives to some extent. But the, probably 90% of the most important things God wants to guide us on are already there in Scripture. 
in terms of our love for God, our love for people, taking the Great Commission to other folks, doing justice and loving kindness, being kind to those around us, confessing our sins, all of those already taught to us in Scripture. So therefore, are we spending time in the Word? Because what's written on our wall, the wall of each of us individually, is very much what's been written in Scripture already. And there's a wonderful dynamic about the Word that, that God's Word never changes in the sense that uh, the, the, what we have written down, we're going to read today, we're going to read tomorrow, the same words are going to be there, right? It's not rocket science. And yet, God's Word speaks to us in our present realities in, in a very amazing way. The, the, the text I read today will affect me and impact me in my life today. And if I read that same text a year from now, it will not address me according to the needs the year before. The Holy Spirit will use it to address my needs right now. So God's will, since it is written on the wall already, and it's available to us, we need to be diligent in reading it because it is God's gift to us. Now let's pull this together and, and head toward the end from a New Testament perspective. And I want to read to you a, um, a brief text from Titus. Now remember Titus' letter was written by Paul toward the end of Paul's life. It's one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And so this is one of, one of Paul's summary statements addressed to a believer. And he says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Listen not only to the words in this, listen to Paul's heart. What Paul hopes for us is that as we receive this forgiveness, as we receive this relationship with Christ, as we are redeemed from wickedness, as we're purified for him, as we see our identity as his own, that we are eager, eager to follow him. So in, in closing, let's ask this question. If the hand of God were to write a personal message upon the wall of your life right now, what words might appear next to the lampstand? Might they be words of confrontation such as Belshazzar had? Might it be that God has something that he wants us to work on in our own lives? The word of challenge. Are we prejudiced and we need to do something about that? Are we selfish and we need to repent of that? Do we need to remember again that we're working for the Lord and not just for personal gain? Are we remembering that we need to make a priority for our marriages and our families? Are there particular sins that God pulls from his word and reminds us that we are to put away? So I would encourage you to be in the Word this week, to read your Bible and ask yourself, what message does God want me to hear? And go to the Word and look for that and listen for that. And when you pray, not only tell God what you want, but listen for what God might have for you. Because remember, the final word is from Titus, that we become a people that are his own, his very own, eager to do what is good. As we serve a holy God, as we live a holy life, as we pay attention to the will of God in our lives today.
Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you would, the holy God, the maker of the universe, that you would come to be with us, that you would call us to yourself, that you would love us with an everlasting love, that you would forgive us from sins, and that you would plant within us an eagerness to be yours. I pray this week, Lord, even as we focus upon those wonderful positive things, that we would be open to any confrontations or warnings that you have for us in our lives, that we would hear them, that we would receive them, and that relying upon your power, we would ask you through that work to change us more and more into your image. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.